Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey everyone, Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. Happy to have you here on this historic week when we will see President-elect Donald Trump inaugurated in becoming President Donald Trump. And uh, the uh, impact on pharma will be clear. He made it clear last week during his press conference when he said pharma companies were, quote, getting away with murder, unquote, and suggested the time has come for uh, Medicare to begin negotiating pricing directly with pharma rather than relying upon private payers. This is something that's obviously been talked about uh, for over a decade. It was considered uh, back when President Bush passed Medicare Part D in 2003, obviously came up uh, during the passage of ACA in 2009. Each time it was uh, the notion of uh, the federal government, the largest purchaser of pharma uh, directing, excuse me, negotiating directly with pharma companies. Each time it was sort of put back in the back burner as uh, as something that uh, no one really wanted to uh, to touch. And uh, clearly there are reasons for that, political reasons, um, economic reasons. But uh, we are here at a point where it's being brought up on the front burner again. And uh, this time with, uh, with the feeling of this incoming administration and uh, the the public uh, feelings toward farmer pricing, there may be uh, there may be some change afoot. So we wanted to get some insights on what is happening. I was able to uh, talk briefly with uh, a couple of great analysts, friends of the podcast, folks we've had on before, Ronnie Gall of Sanford Bernstein and Liav Abraham of City, and uh, both uh, provided their own. Uh, uh, insights on where all of this might be headed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just uh, play the interview sequentially. We'll uh, start with Ronnie, and then uh, end with Liev, and uh, and I hope you uh, take away some key points. Which is uh, there there is certainly something happening. Um, they will be tracking this, and uh, there may be. Uh, concerns, or there, I should say, there may be other measures that uh, President Trump could take to uh, to bring farmer pricing uh, in line with uh, with his expectations. So, so we'll get into these interviews right away. I did want to take a moment though to uh, refer you to our Ion Innovation newsletter. Our contributing editor, Rich Kirkner, has uh, has sort of tackled this issue from a different direction looking at some of the campaigns that have gone on at the state level to uh, control pricing, including the recent effort in California that failed. So uh, if you're not getting your eye on innovation newsletter, you should. Go to oas.net, provide your email, and uh, we'll send that obviously directly to your inbox. You'll get uh, great articles like the one by Rich, this podcast, and our own video content as well. So, uh, And it's absolutely free. Just give us your email address. And uh, we will be happy to hook you up. Also, I wanted to uh, remind you that registration is now opened for OIS at ASCRS. It's happening on May 4th in Los Angeles at the Sheridan Grand Los Angeles. I've never been to this hotel, but I understand it's undergone a a huge $75 million renovation. And it's supposed to be beautiful. So uh, it's going to be a great 
event. OIS at ASRS is always one of my favorites. And uh, it sounds like it's a fantastic venue as well. So go to OIS.net and register for OIS at ASCRS. Now let's get into the podcast. And again, we'll start with Ronnie Gall, analyst at Sanford Bernstein. Ronnie Gall, welcome back to the OIS podcast. My pleasure. I feel like I need to get you your own theme music. You've been a guest so often. Uh, we need a, a segment just for you. Can, can I pick it, or are you going to find one? Uh, no, you can certainly pick it. Well, you pick three, okay. and we'll, and I'll pick the winner. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> so last week, uh, it's something that had been talked about on on the campaign trail for for well for as long as the campaign trail went. It's something that's been talked about for a long time, which is. It bringing given the giving Medicare and the federal government the ability to to negotiate drug prices directly with pharma, and it came out last week, ironically during J.P. Morgan, uh, when everyone was in one city, and, and the collective stress of that city probably went up a few uh, a few degrees when uh, President Elect Trump uh, suggested that pharma was quote unquote getting away with murder, and that it was time to introduce uh, some sort of control over over pricing and, and, and allow Medicare to negotiate directly with uh, with drug companies what it's hard to figure out where this can go it can go in many different directions perhaps we can hit upon that podcast but what did that comment say to you did it reaffirm things that were said on the campaign trail or or was did it come as as sort of a surprise it didn't really come as a surprise um it was more an issue of priority um it was clear that there's a, a very Kind of, there's a public anger at, at drug costs in general, out-of-pocket drug costs particularly. Um, and Trump, as well as I think basically every other leading candidate, said something about this. But they all have other priorities. The priorities for the president-elect Trump appears to be the, the repeal and replace of the ACA. And it wasn't clear if drugs will rise to the level of importance that will necessitate an action now or that will be left as kind of like in the tail end of the agenda. Since you've mentioned it twice, uh, once obviously in his first speech since being elected, we now have to take it seriously and assume there is some sort of a, a plan in the in the works by his CMS and HHS uh, appointees to do something about drug costs. So where do we go from? Where do you go from here as someone who's who's watching this industry and trying to forecast what that actually means? I think the 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 first feeling is the sky is falling. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be terrible, but does it actually play out to be that bad a scenario, or are there ways where this could be something that could uh, could maybe make things a little more difficult for pharma, but but not be as as destructive as some fear? So, so it's kind of I think about it a little bit differently. I think the question is: Is there a real plan there, which usually means some sort of a, an overlay on the existing infrastructure, or is this an attempt to kind of like redo the way the U.S pays for drugs, which is essentially impossible plan will have a low probability of being accepted. So uh, I think the chances that we'll essentially move to a single payer system where we essentially undo the entire drug industry's infrastructure within one fell swoop is is extremely unlikely. What we're more likely to see is some sort of a plan to change the way specific federal plans now pay for drugs. And that's actually more dangerous because that's probably actionable and that's probably something that could pass, uh, primarily because the Democrats will very much support it. So so the need for a, a wall-to-wall uh, support for that can actually be achieved given you've got a Republican um, 
president and split Congress. You know the famous saying about only Nixon can go to China. It might take a Republican president to actually introduce some sort of, of restriction on drug on drug pricing, uh, but that can happen in this administration. Yeah, well, it took a it took a Republican to get Party put together in the first place. So you're, you're probably that's exactly yeah, that's a pro- good point. Yeah. So this is an area where I mean it's easy to say we're going to make pharma pay. We want to negotiate. Uh, the fact right. is that there is some negotiating to go through. Pharma, at least in the U.S., is negotiating with with private payers. And with private payers, yeah. right, which which Medicare can, you know, per, obviously they they carry more leverage and they can negotiate even better. But the other part of the of the equation is is patients who want these drugs. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. it's not something that Medicare can just walk away necessarily from the table and say, fine, we're not going to pay you for your life saving medicine. They kind of need to get that stuff out in the market as well, uh, and they can't really worry right. perhaps as much about the dollars. So. Is it a scenario, and, and you're right, it is more achievable, I think, than it's clearly more achievable in a single pair. But is there a scenario where this does happen, but the, the impact on pricing and therefore the pharma business isn't, uh, isn't as great as perhaps we think? Yeah, well, yes and no. So, so the yes, the no part is easy. So even if you look at countries that have a single payer system, uh, they typically do pay for life-saving medications. I, I, I just, you know, in JPM, I actually had a chance to sit next to the CEO of Celgene, and he kind of very proudly mentioned that the European countries so far have calculated that this drug is worth uh, more than he was asking them to pay for it. So life-saving medication, breakthrough medication, will continue to be paid for, um, but there's, those, those are the minority of drugs the drug industry is selling, a lot of the drugs the drug industry is selling are really second generation, third generation, follow on drug in, in somewhat competitive markets. Now, they all have some advantage, but uh, in, at least hypothetically, they can be negotiated against other drugs for, for bigger discounts. Um, the other half of price, uh, of, of getting price discounts, as you astutely observed, is a formulary. Just simply showing up to the drug industry and saying, you know, you'll give us discounts does not work unless you have a formulary tool that you're willing to apply in case it doesn't happen, in case they say no. And those formulary tools that are used by the commercial payers currently don't exist in, Medica- in CMS in general. They just don't know how to do it. Uh, and introducing those tools in CMS appears to be the, the main thing that will be the main addition here to the mix of tools the government has. Hmm. And and you're right about about some drugs having more value than others, or or or, or life saving versus perhaps lifestyle. Let's focus on ophthalmology since it's the OIS podcast. Is this a specialty where um, perhaps the drugs that are approved and available are more critical than in other spaces? This isn't a many of these drugs aren't lifestyle drugs. They're they're save your vision sort of drugs, which is I think everyone can agree critical to a person's. Uh, person's health. Is there a, a perhaps, are we uh, more immune than another specialty might be in negotiating prices down the line? Have we, has that played out on the private pay side? I would actually argue it's the other way around. Ophthalmology has relatively few um, NCEs that uh, do not have an alternative. If you look at some of the core indications like glaucoma, anti-infectives, there usually are multiple offerings uh, and, or inflammatories or and a lot of times there are generic drugs which are available. Uh, the primary uh, 
differentiation is primarily around convenience and safety. You know, drugs that make your eyes less red, drugs that are uh, less, uh, drugs that, that are easier to take or require shorter administration, you know, to achieve the same results. We, there's, there are very few drugs in the ophthalmology world that you can basically argue do not have multiple offerings that roughly do the same thing. Even if you take kind of like the kind of like the newest and best, kind of like the uh, wet AMD slash DME drugs, even there you've got multiple offerings. And obviously some of the uh, physicians believe that even a drug like a vasting used off-label is good enough versus the Lucentis, which is the best in the market. So I would actually argue that uh, ophthalmology drugs being heavily dependent on Medicare, primarily uh, used by older people, and um, having multiple offerings are probably more at risk than most drugs. You know, cancer will be very hard to manage. Uh, hemophilia might be riskier for the patient. Orphan drugs generally have one or two drugs per category. Glaucoma, you know, that 12 or 14 of them. That's a great point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the, the multiple offerings. So uh, where do we go from, and, and, and the fact, you, and you, you mentioned that, that I would guess a higher percentage of uh, ophthalmology patients are receiving Medicare. I'm guessing our population is perhaps older than other specialties. In general, yeah. Yeah, so so this is something that clearly people need to be tracking. So going forward, um, what, what are some things you'll be watching for as someone who is, is um, working to track the ophthalmology sector to see you know, whether things move one way or the other? And, and what are some, some things that uh, the CEOs and the, and the entrepreneurs and the investors out there can sort of keep an eye on just to, so they know which way the wind might be blowing in coming months? Yeah, so, so the point is that the people that were appointed to run HHS and CMS are, are kind of practicing professionals with a lot of experience in these issues of drug budget and how we pay for drugs. The assumption I have is that they have some sort of a, a draft of a program they have in their back pocket that they're coming into the administration with the plans to implement. Uh, presumably that these plans will be unveiled within the first three months after the administration takes office. And we should see some sort of a working committee some sort of a trial balloons uh, being floated relatively early uh, by April. So what I'll be doing a lot is doing the classical, you know, watching watching the regulators, watching the, the politicians as some of the details of this uh, suggestions begin to appear in the public domain. I'm currently primarily looking at the introduction of plans along kind of four lines. I'm interested in kind of the dual eligible going from, from Medicare to Medicaid. Uh, that will obviously be negative for uh, the the elderly poor in terms of um, in terms of uh, where, where the cost of those drugs is going to go. Um, I'm looking at introduction of uh, Medicaid uh, negotiations uh, to the state in the state level. I'm looking at some sort of an overlay um, of negotiations on top of Medicare Part D, maybe on, on high price drugs. And uh, last but not least, Medicare Part B, that's something CMS has been wanted to do for a while, especially for the wet AMD drugs, that, that could be very impactful. And, and there was a, a pilot program within uh, Medicare Part B that, that sort of tried to, to, to do, present at least some sort of cap or some sort of price control. That, that didn't play out very well. Yeah, well, the point is that they were trying to use, the, shall we call it, the regulatory authority to end run Congress as opposed to get something like this through Congress. And uh, my expectation, and, and that didn't work. Congress did not want to see that, that power. 
Um, my expectation is that CMS still wants to introduce formulary tools into their organizations, and they'll come back with suggestions how to do that. And certainly, with the, if the president is supportive of that and the HHS administration is supportive of that, we could see something of this being, being reintroduced. So is there anything companies can do now to sort of, I guess, educate themselves or, or prepare, or is it just uh, sit back and wait and see what happens? Obviously, the pharma industry will, will be providing its input via its lobbyists, but what can individuals do? So the pharma industry is the biggest lobbying industry in the United States. Um, I think they spent like 1.3 billion since the record began to be kept by the Center Center for Productive Responsive Politics. So, so there's they, they're a big lobbyer. They uh, they have quite a bit of power. They're quite smart. Um, so we ex- I expect that they will try to shift the debate into other channels and and try to negotiate some sort of a, a broader deal with with the administration as they did in the last in the last uh, debate about. Uh, uh, that, that led to the formation of the ACA. The individual companies, to be honest with you, there isn't that much you can do. I mean, if you kind of think about drug development timelines, it's it's five to ten years, uh, even for ophthalmology, and your drug is targeting the population that it does. Um, there's not much you can do about that. Um, Shifting commercial efforts from U.S. or U.S. is tough and, and will take years. I, I can't really see easy tools that which allow that which will allow a, a, a company to kind of run away from from the potential pressure at this point. So is there an opportunity to maybe, and this is already done to a large point, but focusing more on value? What your you know not only what your drug does, but how it saves money. Has that become an even bigger part of stories going forward? I think that's absolutely true, <clears throat> but I would kind of spin it the other way around, which is. I think there'll be there's an increasing focus on first in class differentiated medications that other people do not have, okay? Um, and there will be you simply cannot find you can simply not provide enough value to prevent pricing pressure from from coming down on older drugs. I mean, there's no price low enough. The price low enough is the price you walk away from the market. Um, but on differentiated drugs, first in class, unique mechanism of actions, I think there is still obviously some market to do. And what we're seeing in terms of uh, M and A is primarily a focus on those kind of those kind of inventions. So you know, fewer me too drugs, more unique mechanism of action drugs. Great. All right. Well, it's uh, it's already been an interesting couple of weeks. It's going to be an interesting uh, year in administration coming up. So. I hope we do visit visit from you time to time to get your insights, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Pleasure. Thanks. Well, thanks, Ron Gall. I appreciate the uh, the insights and the sort of the checklist of what we should be looking for going forward. It's a uh, it's an enormous help as we track these very interesting times. Before we get into the interview with Liev Abraham, uh, I did want to invite presenting companies or companies in ophthalmology that want to present at our upcoming OIS at ASCRS to submit your application. Go to OIS.net, scroll down to the bottom, and you'll see the Presenting Companies tag. Click on that, and there is an application that you should fill out to uh, try to get your time on stage at OIS at ASCRS. The deadline to apply is March 30th, and again, uh, OIS at ASCRS is happening on May 4th in Los Angeles. So uh, we hope to see you there on stage. Now we'll get into our uh, interview with Liev. Uh, She has an interesting point that uh, soon-to-be president, or perhaps president by the time you're listening to this, Trump, will have a, uh, a, a very uh, readily available uh, weapon in his arsenal to, to sort of 
convince pharma companies to rein in their pricing all on their own. So let's get into this conversation with Liev Abraham of City. Liev Abraham, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Uh, great to be here. Great. Well, we may, we may call it the Trumpcast. I'm not sure if we're going to change the name, but uh, but that does seem to have an impact <laughs> on things. We are we are talking about uh, last week's comments uh, by President Elect, soon to be President Trump, uh, just about farmer getting away, quote unquote, with murder, and uh, and uh, he believing that this is an opportunity to uh, to uh, introduce negotiations uh, of drug prices. And you had an interesting report that I think you issued this week, um, where you you suggested that. Another uh, uh, arrow in his quiver, uh, one even more readily available than uh, than negotiating prices, would be just his his uh, Twitter account. Uh, yes, absolutely, Tom. Well, um, uh, and this is something that we've seen the president um, elect use effectively um, during his campaign and also after his election. Um, for example, with uh, with Carrier and and uh, um, and regarding the. Uh, uh, the negotiations uh, of the cost of his uh, of, of of a new airplane um, with with Boeing. So this is not something new. Um, this is certainly um, a tool in the president-elect's armamentarium, and it's been effective thus far. And um, I would consider uh, I would uh, anticipate that he would uh, he'll continue using it. And he suggested as much in uh, an article with the Washington Post um, this past weekend. That's that's uh, that is a fascinating uh, aspect of this because when uh, a company is is forecasting sales or, or coming up with a pricing strategy, when you as an analyst or, or sort of uh, measuring their potential, how do you account for <laughs> for the tweet? It's uh, you know, do you just these companies perhaps just hope that they're going to be you know the, the kids in the classroom hoping to not get called on by the teacher, just do enough to to make what they need to make, but not to stand out in the crowd. Well, I think um, this started um, before uh, Trump's uh, um, Trump's appointment, uh, his election as uh, um, as uh, president. This started even with the Clinton campaign and 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 Bernie, Saun- uh, Bernie Saunders. Um, this has been an issue over the past eighteen months, and I think companies have already started to communicate um, to communicate. Uh, their anticipation for estimates um, accordingly. And we've seen some companies um, take the lead on this quite publicly, um, such as Allegan, and, and others have followed suit as well. So I would expect that this is somewhat baked into um, companies' expectations to some extent or another, and consequently also into analyst expectations as well. Do you anticipate, though, that there will be a successful move to uh, to bring in some, some more uh, Medicaid negotiations directly into the, the part drug prices, uh, or uh, will this be enough? As you, as you point out in, in your report, there obviously is negotiations between uh, ins- private insurers and drug companies, and that's and that does have a, a, an impact on minimizing costs. Sure, and, and I guess there are um, potentially two avenues that uh, the president-elect could take. One would be potentially government negotiation of Medicare prices, and as you as you mentioned, these are already quite successfully negotiated via private plans. Um, unclear whether this would yield additional savings. There's been a lot of resistance to this in the past. I don't place a high probability on this actually um, materializing. The other thing that um, the administration could target is dual eligible, so those patients that are eligible for for both Medicare and Medicaid and um, and and uh, impact 
affecting the the level of rebating um, there. So that 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 could uh, we could see that take place. Um, difficult to place a probability on it, but I just would note that it's a pretty small uh, number in terms of um, overall patients in the U.S. and therefore overall costs. So I, I still see his most um, um, effective. A mechanism for uh, for influencing uh, drug pricing as his Twitter account and the public shaming that he has done in the past and is likely to continue doing. No doubt. And also in this report, you, you mentioned something that I hadn't thought about, but is his targeting of offshoring man, offshore manufacturing, which is obviously something that we see a lot in, in, uh, in, in medtech and in pharma as well. Do you anticipate that that will... Uh lead to higher costs some way or the other, either a tariff or, or some other sort of border protection uh, measure that might be taken? Will will they feel the same heat? Will pharma feel the same heat that Ford and others are feeling? Um, well, uh, this, two points here. Firstly, this is something that is being targeted as part of uh, U.S. corporate tax reform. It's part of the GOP's blueprint for tax reform and has been uh, talked about extensively by Speaker Paul Ryan and Congressman Kevin Brady, who is the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Trump has talked um, not about border adjustments, but he's talked about placing a tariff on imports. Uh, the two are slightly different, unclear which one will prevail, but it's uh, we place a high light, uh, higher probability on border adjustments just because of the mechanism of getting um, of getting u s corporate tax reform passed so that 's the first point. The second point would be the impact on drug companies. Um, a lot of them do manufacture products uh, offshore uh, different companies to different extents and it 's uh, unclear exactly who manufactures what where. Um, the generic companies, for example, uh, do the majority of their manufacturing in India and import it into the U.S. And this was this would certainly um, have an impact on uh, on their margins if it were to be implemented. And what are you, finally, what will you be looking for going forward as uh, President-elect Trump becomes President Trump, and as as he begins to move from just tweeting to actually uh, uh, initiating? legislation or, or pushing for actual measures. What are you looking to happen? What, what do you think may happen over the next few months? What sort of telltale signs will you be looking at that will kind of help you give guidance to uh, investors in Wall Street? So um, a few things. Firstly, we'll be looking for uh, legislative action. Uh, we know from comments that the president-elect has made and also from um, uh, key members of uh, of the House, such as Speaker Ryan, that uh, repeal and replace of the um, Affordable Care Act is, um, is is one of the key things that they'll be targeting in the first 100 days, as is uh, corporate tax reform. So those are two things that we'll be looking for from a, um, from a legislative angle. Um, I think we'll also be looking at uh, the President-elect's Twitter account and what he says and whether he continues to target um, drug manufacturers on pricing. And then the third thing that I'd be looking for is incremental commentary and um, behavior of or adjustment of behaviors by pharma companies vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, the drug pricing in particular and how they communicate on this going forward. So do you anticipate, how are you, what are you hearing from companies themselves? How are, how are they uh, approaching not only the pricing issues but any other issues? Are they doing anything differently than they've done in the past? Uh, is this new? Is this uncharted territory for everybody and, and no one's really sure of the proper direction yet? 
So I think as it relates to the tax issues, it's somewhat uncharted territories. These uh, import taxes or border adjustments are part of broader corporate tax reform. No one's seen the legislation yet. Companies are somewhat hesitant to um, provide commentary given that uh, tax reform does will include uh, some positive elements for, for companies as well, such as a lowering of the uh, U.S. corporate tax rate. Um, as it relates to drug pricing, I think you are seeing companies already start to be more cautious um, uh, regarding their pricing commentary, and we've seen Allegan in particular take the lead on this and comment on um, mid-single-digit net price increases for 2017 um, and beyond, and a couple of other companies have followed suit. I would expect this to, to continue going forward. Okay, great. Well, it'll be an interesting time ahead for sure. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, explain some things to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that is a wrap. Yev Abraham and Ronnie Gall, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to uh, share your insights on what we may see happening in pharma over the next few months. It certainly will be interesting times, and I doubt this will be the last time we're talking about it on this podcast. Again, I appreciate you both uh, taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, of course, to our podcast listeners for joining us. It's a tr- true treat to have you here each week, and I hope you found these interviews fruitful. I wanted to uh, ask a few favors of you. If you could uh, recommend all the OIS podcast on iTunes, whatever platform you're listening to, just give us a ranking. That will uh, help other people find this podcast. If you have a few seconds and want to offer some comments, we'd love to, uh, to hear what you think of the podcast. Finally, if you have a, a colleague who is uh, as into innovation as you are, please do tell them about the podcast. The more listeners, the better. And uh, if you'd like to reach me directly, you can shoot me an email. I'd love to hear, again, what you think about the podcast or what other issues uh, we may be covering or or people we should be talking to that we have missed so far. Just send me an email. My email is tom at healthogy.com. Healthogy is spelled the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y dot com. Healthogy is the company that produces the OIS podcast and the Ophthalmology Innovation Summit. So would love very much to hear from our listeners. And uh, finally, I did want to remind you that OIS at ASCRS is happening on May 4th in Los Angeles. Registration is open. Applications for presenting companies, uh, that is open as well. You can find those applications rather on OIS.net. So uh, please do go to OIS.net, register, and we will see you in Los Angeles.